0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. A good day to run through the sprinkler. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: As long as you're not in Ottawa. Tornadoes. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. 900 CHML. Lots going on today, and another jam-packed show. Uh, and uh, well, uh, the good news here's the good news: the BC port strike is now over. I shouldn't say that a tentative deal has been reached. So this all has to go through the process, of course. But uh, at this point, uh, good news. And and obviously, no wonder. Uh, I don't know if you saw this on the news yesterday, uh, but a, a series of uh, of uh, high ups in uh, BC industry were uh, hanging around the port and uh, with a news conference that just had some unbelievable numbers of how much this was costing uh, the entire country and uh, demanded that the government get involved. And uh, I I guess the last offer that was made was put to a mediator. We don't know anything about this. Then all of a sudden, blammo, uh, we've got a tentative deal. So either way, good news. going to take weeks to clear up the backlog, but it looks like um, the worst of this is over. And, um, yeah, there you go. All right. So, uh, we'll actually, I got a clip of that right now. John Strader, Global News. Here's what we know so far. Now, no terms of the agreement revealed. It says the four-year deal is subject to ratification by both parties, so details are not yet being released. The 10:30 deadline was for the two sides to signal if they would accept a federal mediator's recommendations and settle their dispute. Now, about 7,400 workers walked out on Canada Day. The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade estimating 63,000 shipping containers are stuck aboard ships waiting to be unloaded. John Strait, Global News. So there you have it. Tentative deal reached there. So that's good news in a time where supply chain issues continue to be a challenge uh, in a post-pandemic world. Another uh, breaking news story today. And, and and this is very sad. And I don't want to get into the politics of it or, or what have you. But, man, y- you got to ask. Uh, the police officers that have been killed. Uh, including those by uh, suspects who were already out on bail, or already a, a, ser- a history of violent crime, and out on bail, or or what have you. Uh, here we go again, and it, it, it's tough not to think something's busted here, something ain't right. We've got uh, 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 we've got a lack of leadership and a lack of management here, and clearly, when it comes to uh, uh, criminality when it comes to corrections we saw with the bernardo uh, case that the left hand just has no idea what is the right hand is doing here and now uh toronto police are saying a man faces second degree murder charges after a bystander was struck and killed by a stray bill a uh, bullet last week in Leslieville. you might remember this story global news has learned the accused was out on bail and has a criminal lengthy criminal record uh, this fatal incident happened near queen street and carla in toronto uh, midday's. mid days uh three men three men were fighting two of the men pull out handguns and just start blasting at each other where well, there's people on the street and a woman a woman walking past was struck by stray a stray bullet rushed to the hospital and died 44 year old mother of two walking around at the Queen and Carla area, downtown Toronto, gets hit by a stray bullet by some goofs that are, you know, think they're playing a video game. And now we find out that the person that's responsible, or at least the suspect, alleged suspect, is in the same situation out on bail, a uh, lengthy criminal record. Uh, here's what Catherine McDonald. Uh, Global's crime news uh, sorry crime reporter had to say uh, about this
2: I made some calls just my court contacts and yeah you know, I was writing on a piece of paper and it was quite a lengthy criminal record uh, going back to 2011 I, I, that I could see and then I actually um, found in 2019 he was convicted of aggravated assault weapons dangerous in the judgment the judge wrote about his you know lengthy violent past I mean we're talking convictions for robberies for assaults for drugs and he had a lifetime weapons ban uh
0: this is what the judge had to say
2: to quote the judge in this um indictment the judge writes mr hudson is a repeat offender who has committed assaults robberies firearm offenses although the majority of his acts of violence were committed in his earlier years um it is Mm -hmm. of concern that his response to community supervision has been poor it is aggravating that at the time of these offenses he was on two probation orders and uh, it's there's a long list of all his prior convictions and the time he yeah. spent in prison
0: all right and again while this was going on and while this mother of two was shot just walking on a neighborhood street this person out on bail for two separate charges
2: he had sureties he was under supervision uh, allegedly at the time you know of the slightest charge and and he he was out on bail. I'm just looking for Assault Times 2, failing to comply with probation, assault caused bodily harm, and failing to comply probation orders.
0: All right, there you have it, Catherine McDonald, Global News crime reporter, on what she knows of, of, of the record of this person who ha- has been in and out of jail several times, charged several times, and, and, and out on bail on two separate charges when gets into a gunfight and 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 you know, indirectly, takes out a, a an innocent mother of two. What the hell are these people going doing out on bail? And we've we've been talking about this forever. And this isn't about the person who makes a mistake and has a clean record. And you know, uh, the worst got the best of them, and they made a terrible mistake. These are people that are repeat offenders. That's who's killing police officers. That's who's killing mothers of two out for a stroll in a neighborhood in downtown Toronto. And you know what? When people say it's broken, it's hard not to agree. Because this keeps happening time and time and time again. Meanwhile, ministers don't even know when people are being transferred. Especially after the correction services have told their offices. Who the hell's driving the bus? Well try to find out. Fighting for truth and justice as he always does. Franco Terrazano is with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Get ready for this. According to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh the Bank of Canada has handed out twenty million dollars in bonuses last year as inflation reached a forty-year high. Uh, bonuses and pay raises since twenty twenty have totaled almost seventy-two million dollars without any cuts uh franco Terrazano with his canadian taxpayer federation federal director and here now franco thanks for the time hope you're well
3: hey i am well but i'll tell you what this one really irks me
0: Before we even get to this, I just thought of something because we're talking and it was uh, without a single pay cut that that got my attention here. Because if you drive around anywhere, any city, anywhere in Canada, you're going to see help wanted. We need people. We need people. We need people. We need people. It seems that there's an employee shortage everywhere except at the provincial or sorry, federal government.
3: Yeah, no kidding. It's just a surge. At the federal government, right? I mean, like no one else uh, can find
0: no one else can find any employees. And and yet they're like overflowing.
3: Yeah, I mean, the Trudeau government, since it came to power, added an extra 98,000 bureaucrats, an increase of 40 percent. And nobody's seen an increase in value from the federal government of 40 percent. The only thing we're getting from the federal government that's a 40 percent increase is a 40 percent increase in time it takes to get a passport.
0: Yeah, good point. Uh How do governments get bonuses? Usually uh, in the private sector, a, a bonus is a performance bonus. In other words, if you go beyond uh your current role or the typical role of a call of duty, you and, and their success and their success, then you get paid a bonus. Where is how do they judge success, uh, success in order to grant these bonuses when we're in the position we're in?
3: Well, I think if they show up to work one day a week with their shoes tied, they're getting a bonus. (laughs) You know, I say that tongue in cheek, but like, come on. I mean, the Bank of Canada, folks, it has one job. According to its own mandate, it has one job to keep inflation low and around 2%. Well, what was inflation last year? 6.8%, a 40 year high. And so I don't know too many organizations out there in the real world that are showering employees with bonuses when they have their worst year in four decades. Meanwhile, at the Bank of Canada, they had their worst year in 40 years. They hiked rates seven times in 2022. And what do they do? They give 80% of their workforce a bonus totaling $20 million. So look, all I can sit here and say is, I, I can't believe we have to say this, but bonuses are for when you do a good job. Bonuses are not for when you fail at your only job.
0: We've talked about this several times in, in you know various uh, uh, divisions, uh, departments of the government, and such. Is there a set? And, and I don't know. Can you find this out through freedom of information, what have you? But is there a, a a set of guidelines, a set of rules, a set of criteria about what constitutes somebody getting a bonus?
3: Oh, I mean, you would hope that there is. We haven't seen it. Maybe that's a good idea. We should start looking into like just what are the criteria. Um, But if we look at the broader federal government, um, look, the departments are meeting less than half of their own performance targets. Within the federal government proper, their departments are meeting less than half of their own performance targets. And last year, government executives in the Trudeau government got average bonuses that totaled more than $18,000. And now that's not the Bank of Canada, that's the government proper. This year, or sorry, in 2022, the Bank of Canada the average bonus there was, was more than $11,000. But this is going on all across government. And what really needs to be done is we need to see some political pressure here. We need to see your finance minister say enough is enough. We can't keep rewarding failure with bonuses paid for by the taxpayer. And on that note, like let me just point out, in Budget 2023, Finance Minister Christia Freeland said that she would work with the Crown Corporations to find more than a billion dollars of savings. Well, I think you got to go after the low hanging fruit. And I can't even imagine fruit that's hanging any lower than bonuses for people when they fail at their job.
0: Now, is this, is there any way, Frank, I'm playing devil's advocate here? Is this overtime? <laughs> like this is money that they're owed anyway. They did the work, they should be paid.
3: Well, this isn't overtime. No, this is, we specifically asked for bonuses. So this isn't overtime. This is specifically for bonuses. And you know what might be the craziest part of this entire story? Well, there's two things. One is the obvious, right? They let inflation get out of control. They hiked interest rates. We're paying for all of that. And then the central bankers are taking bonuses. That's the obvious one, and that irks me. But the second craziest part of this entire story is that you have the Bank of Canada itself admit that it missed the mark on inflation, its only job. And it also, the, their deputy governor said that the the central bankers should be held accountable. Well, I don't know about you, but handing out big bonus checks to eighty percent of your workforce doesn't exactly sound to me like you're holding your organization accountable.
0: Uh, here's another one, and I think you're going to shoot this one down too. Should uh, <laughs> should a rate hike have anything to do with their bonuses?
3: Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, but here's let me just give you a solid answer. I think that inflation should have something to do with their bonuses. So, for example, um, if inflation is a 40-year high and their number one job, their entire mandate is to keep inflation low and around 2%, and inflation comes in at almost 7%, then they should absolutely not be getting bonuses. But, hey, bonuses are only part of the story because guess what, folks? Before the bonuses kick in, almost half of the entire Bank of Canada workforce is already making over $100,000 in annual salary. So you got big salaries, then you get big bonuses on top of it. And I'm over here wondering what taxpayers are getting out of this whole mess.
0: All right. Another edition of Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Man, the Bank of Canada handing out bonuses. Won't Canadians be happy to hear about that this week? Franco, as always, thanks so much for the
3: time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. (laughs)
0: We've been hearing a lot, especially of late as this thing has dragged on uh, a a British Columbia port strike on the other side of the country is affecting the whole country. And we certainly know uh, what the effects were to the supply chain during a global pandemic. And as things are slowly starting to get back to normal, boom. Uh, of course, Canada faced with a a port strike, but the good news is a tentative deal has been struck. To find out more about all of this, Keith Baldry is with us, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief based in Victoria, and is with us now. Keith, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Great to be here.
0: So, tentative deal. Give us the details. What do we know here?
4: Well, the only detail that's been released is that it's a four year uh, contract. The employer had been seeking a four year deal to provide some certainty and a longer timeline of certainty. The union had a two-year proposal, but the mediator, and this was solved by a federal mediator, uh, Peter Simpson, uh, who's their senior federal government mediator. He um, had been in these talks for, for some months now. He was very familiar with the issues. So he put together recommended settlement, and uh, to somewhat uh, some observers' surprise, it was accepted this morning uh, by the 1030 Pacific Time deadline. Uh, which means the first shift goes back to work at 4.30 Pacific time this afternoon, which is great news. The goods can start flowing. Uh, but as you mentioned, the supply chain, which we took for granted for years, but you know its weaknesses were magnified or exposed in the pandemic, and now this uh, this port strike would have really uh, compromised the supply chain, not only for, for Vancouver or the West, but this was reaching all the way into Ontario, where you had Ontario of Premier Doug Ford calling for the federal government to intervene because where Ontario was feeling the pinches, uh, auto parts weren't flowing uh, from hmm. west to east to, to the auto industry. So this is basically affecting the entire country. Longest strike since the 1970s in terms of a port strike. And the good news is there's a tentative deal. We don't have the details other than it's a four-year agreement. I suspect the wage increase is going to be significant, though, uh, because um, certainly the the employees were looking down south to the settlement. The same union settled on the west coast of the United States in a deal brokered by U.S. President Joe Biden. That was a 32% wage increase over Mm. six years, so about 5% Mm. a year. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's similar numbers in this deal over four years.
0: You talked about a uh, a mediator being involved and had been uh, uh, for a portion of this. What what do you think jerked this loose now? And you were you were said you were even surprised that this deal uh, was agreed upon. Why do you think this is happening
4: now? Well, I think both sides were looking for a way out. I mean, they they both had sort of hit a wall. There was no prospect of talks going on. Uh, the employees were starting to lose ground here in terms of wages. They had the first week of the strike, most of them were still being paid because that's the way the the two-week pay window works. But they were starting to lose some some financial uh, uh, impact, and I think that was part of it. Uh, But I think both sides realized there had to be a compromise here, and I think where the compromise may have been on this issue of who does uh, work when it comes to maintenance. Maintenance, it turns out, who knew this, uh, in ports, Uh, is a big deal. There's a lot of maintenance work that goes into it. These are vast operations with rail lines, with cranes, with all Mm. sorts of moving parts. The union wanted more jobs allocated to them for maintenance. The employer was arguing, you don't have the skill set necessary. But right before talks broke off, the employer did say, okay, how about if we farm this out to a committee uh, for sort of an arbitration process? And I wouldn't be surprised if that may have been where this was solved, that there was a compromise on this thorny issue of uh, who does the work when it comes to maintenance. I also think there was probably a sweeter offer on the table than what the employer was offering in terms of wages. The employer was only offering 14% over four years, which in light of inflation right now, I just don't think was going to cut it with the the, uh, unionized members. However, if the mediator came in with a compromise and said, no, we're going to sweeten that... um, that uh, uh, that pot of money to a higher percentage i wouldn't be and offer a signing bonus not the 8000 the union was looking for but presumably a smaller signing bonus i think that would be enough to get the union to move on that so the employer moving on compromising on when it comes to maintenance and perhaps the union compromising on it when it comes to uh, wages and and, uh, maintenance. Just speculation on my part, but having followed this from day one and talking to some of the insiders at the table, that's probably where the breaking point was.
0: Plus also, Keith, with a strike of this magnitude that affects everyone across the country when it comes to things like the supply chain, the the shelf life of an out like this is maybe two weeks, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and uh, you a fascinating book a few years ago written by a British journalist um, who spent a year on container ships. And I think she started out about the, the impact container ships were having on, on the sea and on the environment and such. But the, her book ended up being called 90% of any, Everything because it, she was fascinated by the fact that 90% of the goods we consume on a daily basis, whether it's your groceries, your clothes, your appliances, your, your cars even, uh, or car parts. Um, spend some time on a container ship. So these container ships, there's 63,000 containers were piling up at the Vancouver port or on ships getting ready to dock. That's 63,000 containers of goods that we consume on a daily basis, and there's just limited inventory that stores can handle. Not everyone, not all stores have huge warehouses at their disposal to st- store an infinite amount of goods. So the supply chain issue, I think, was hitting the critical mass point because you're right. We were almost two weeks into the strike and that's when you would start seeing shortages on the shelves. You know, you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, people stocking up on toilet mm. paper and all sorts of goods, and there were bare shelves in stores that, you know, March of 2020, April of 2020, and we could have headed, be headed towards that direction as well as this thing had dragged on much longer.
0: Uh, a tentative deal at this point, do you think there's any chance that it may not be ratified?
4: There's always that chance. Uh, there was a pretty rabble-rousing rally for the the union on the weekend where there was a lot of, you know, yelling at the government uh, don't intervene, you know, basically fairly militant crowd, but I suspect it's going to get ratified. Few deals don't get ratified, but it does happen from time to time. The employer certainly I think is going to um, ratify this, but uh, it remains to be seen what the union does, but I'd be surprised if they don't.
0: And uh, you talked about backlog. So how long before things are back to normal at the BC port?
4: Well, I expectation it could be several weeks uh to get everything done. I think three weeks was the estimate from the employer yesterday. and keep in mind, there are still ships arriving uh constantly. There's something like fourteen vessels arriving in the next couple of days thirty three vessels before the end of the month. So that will add to the the backlog. It's going to take some time. Thankfully, we're not seeing the shortage on the shelves uh to any great uh degree. Uh, and so again, I think we avoided the worst when it comes to supply chain disruptions.
0: That's the next question, Keith. Will this affect consumers in some way? I mean, will we notice a month down the road all of a sudden a either a shortage or prices going up?
4: Well, that's the fear that the prices you would you could see a price hike. Um, but the good good news is that some of the layoffs, which were really the worst case scenario, may be avoided. Those are in some of the industries. Which, whose uh, resources were not moving. Saskatchewan, for example, potash, a major export, suddenly was frozen. They had to curtail potash production because it can't be stored for a long time. Same thing in British Columbia where the pulp mills, you just can't store pulp indefinitely. You have to move it. They were starting to lay off hundreds of people. So that hopefully that's going to stop. But because of the, the clog and the backlog in the supply chain, there may be some hiccups when it comes to uh, some price hikes that uh, maybe go beyond inflation.
0: Keith Baldry with us, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief, based in Victoria. A tentative deal has been, strike, uh, has been struck in the B.C. port strike. Keith, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, anytime. Take care. Do you need a ride? Public transit in Burlington will be free for seniors. And free for young people on evenings and weekends starting in August. The free rides were approved by City Council uh, on Tuesday and will apply to anyone over the age of 65 for all rides and for those 13 to 19 after 6 o'clock on weekdays and anytime on weekends. The only catch... Riders need a Presto card, which can be purchased for about six or four, six bucks at any Presto service location. Uh, But the downtown bus terminal on John Street also offers free youth and senior Presto cards during July and August. Holy smokes. To talk more about all of this, Catherine uh, Baldelli is with us, Director of Transit, City of Burlington, and here now. Catherine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
5: I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: So, objective here, Catherine, why are you doing this?
5: Well, this is a directive from our city council. They are very keen on offering free transit. And we actually were one of the first municipalities to offer free transit for seniors um, starting uh, in May of 2019. So we started offering free transit um, for seniors during the day, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. and It was a way to get seniors using the bus and a a way to get seniors to use the bus during the time when most people would see the buses riding empty, is what we heard. So, Council approved this in 2019, and uh, we've been doing it ever since, and now we're making it permanent all day, every day, so it's very exciting.
6: Talk about uh, the
0: uh, prior to this and, and the feedback, the response you've got. Uh, in, it, has it increased ridership in just what you've done so far?
5: Yes, it has. Our senior riders... Um When we started this in May of 2019, we measured um, the statistics and did our data analysis from May of 2019 to February of 2020, right before the pandemic. And we saw a 40% increase in senior ridership. And we were blown away going, wow, seniors really do want to take transit. So this was uh, positive feedback and we're continuing it. So we're hoping that they use transit all the time now
0: is the intention here to make it free all uh, permanently or is this to bring ridership back and then try to find a sweet spot
5: um That's a good question. Our city council has a staff direction on the table for investigating both free transit for students as well as free transit for all. And those will be presented to council um, later this year for the students. And then next year, uh, Q4 2024, we're anticipating a a fulsome report, a detailed analysis on what free transit for all would look like, benefits, costs, risks, etc.
0: Uh, Well, let's talk about costs, because at the end of the day, how do you pay for this, especially when transit systems are having issues?
5: The cost would be uh, part of our budget. So our 2024 budget um, is where the free seniors will be um, added to our budget. In 2023, the free students, the free youth, uh, 13 to 19, was added as part of our budget
0: uh obviously with uh seniors and uh off peak hours sort of speak uh, ridership as you mentioned was low anyway this is obviously putting more people on those buses during uh, during those off peak hours um do you think if you do this for everyone um it, well what do you expect would happen once you did that <sighs>
5: It would create a lot of ridership. And um, right now we are limited in the number of buses we have. So we want to make sure that whatever we roll out is sustainable and is manageable.
0: Is And I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Is this just simply uh, easy to do right now because ridership has fallen off so greatly uh, that that rather than having buses, like you said, drive around empty, at least you're getting bodies on them. Hopefully that will lead to, uh, a change of habit, and more and more people using it, and and hopefully one day paying for it. Is that accurate?
5: Um, it, it's it is accurate. However, Burlington Transit has seen a significant increase in ridership uh, since the end since the pandemic. Um, every year we've um, we've seen an increase, and we're actually surpassing our pre pandemic ridership. So. What also contributes to increased people using buses is frequency. And we've added more service. In 2019, we actually went through a redesign of our transit networks, which introduced more frequency on various routes. And that also saw an increase in ridership. And we're building our service back to the pre-pandemic level. And we're hoping that coupled with some of our free transit initiatives will um will really show um the the increase does it have to be
0: and i don't know if this is an answerable an answerable question catherine does it have to be free in order to bring riders
5: um not necessarily i i think free gets people on the buses and trying it and um with the youth it it you know allowing them to use transit on evenings and weekends. Maybe they would never have thought to use transit. And it's providing a little bit of independence and saying, I know how to get from my home to my work or to the movies. And, you know, giving them that little push and saying, hey, it's free. I don't have to worry about carrying money. I can use a Presto card. Um, It just gives them that opportunity to try transit and to change their behavior.
0: Uh, and this is very targeted and and I don't think anybody would say that this isn't a good idea for the seniors this isn't a good idea for the uh, the the, uh, the teenagers because it obviously gets them uh, on the bus uh, for sure when are you going to try free for everybody because that's when obviously you might get into some complications <laughs>
5: <laughs> well that's why we're going to we took back that request from council and we're going to do a full, deep dive into what the cost would be, if it's sustainable, uh, looking at everything. So that's why we asked council for um, about a year to look into this. So we're going to do the research. We're going to um, hire a consultant and help with this project because there's a lot of things that our staff don't know and a lot of things that we definitely need to learn and understand before we would launch something that grandiose. (laughs)
0: Interesting experiment. It's going to be interesting to watch, too. Good luck. Catherine Bedelli with us, Director of Transit, City of Burlington, free for seniors and for teenagers after six and on weekends. Uh, Catherine, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks a lot. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
2: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, yesterday more bad news came in the sense of another. Uh, interest rate hike, and up to 5% now. and Mortgage holders across the country are facing a growing crisis following the rate hike, uh, up to 5% now. Where does that leave us and those looking to get into the housing market and whatever, whether it's paying off your debt or mortgages or what have you? Let's bring in Don Fox, Executive Financial Consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. You can hear Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning right here on CHML. Don, thanks for the time. I hope you're well doing great Scott yourself. So far so good. so before we get to the actual uh, rate hike and what that means for everybody, let me ask you this because I was talking to uh, a professor of economics uh, yesterday and and we were talking about the the interest rate hike and in the history of it and, and you know all the stats what have you and he, the point that he made was uh, I, I can't see putting everybody through all of this pain to get down to 2% when we're already at 34 He go. I get the 2%, I get it, I understand it, I'm an, I'm an economist. But to go through this for the final point seems almost extreme. Uh, extreme is my word, not his. But he thought uh, it was a bit too much. What are your thoughts there?
7: You know what, I 100% agree with this economist. I don't know about this magic 2%. I, I get that it's better for certain things. Mm-hmm. But we we went through this. Um, well, it was well above three percent for like forty years, and you know the economy did mm-hmm. okay during that time. So whether it's two percent or three percent, it does seem like a somewhat drastic in order to continue going through that. And the people that are hurting the most are the ones in debt. Yeah. Um, there's two sides of this equation: the ones that have money, and uh, they are now earning great interest rates. And in, in, in fact, our cash account is earning. 4.75% right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you brought up an inter-
0: interesting point here. Uh, in the past, inflation has been as high as 3% and nobody seems to blink an eye. So what's the difference here? The fact that it went up to eight and now we're trying to get it back down and and, and two's the, obviously the, the sweet spot here. But as you mentioned, if it just gradually goes up and it hits three, we don't seem to panic this much.
7: It does seem that way. And in the past, You know, we were actually talking about deflation not all that long ago, and people saying we got to get the economy going um, and get the prices to go up a bit quicker. So, and they were lowering interest rates even more to try to stimulate the economy. Um, Now we're doing the exact opposite to try to you know hold back the economy. And you know what? It uh, it, and it's gradual. The ones that have lines of credit, uh, variable rate mortgages, they are getting hurt the most. So the ones in some sort of debt. Um, but variable rate debt, the ones that have locked their money up back in the pandemic at, you know, at two and a half percent mortgages, they, ha- they haven't felt this yet. And they won't yes. probably for another few more years. And hopefully, you know, interest rates have gone down by that time.
0: Well, I, we've done the show on, on Saturdays, uh, Saturday mornings for a for year, I mean, like 20 years now. And um, I remember when interest rates were low. The discussion was this was temporary. How long is this going to last? And I think we were saying that for like five years. What are your thoughts after you see? Uh, my goodness, and I hate to think, after we've been talking about it for 20 years, Don, what are your thoughts are where we have ended up? Would you have thought that way back when? We know the rates were starting to creep up prior to the pandemic, and it was the pandemic that threw everything into a, you know, off kilter and such. But considering where we've been with this run of 20 years of unbelievably historically low interest rates, what are your thoughts where we are?
7: Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you on this because, no, you know, you know there's a time, and you and I both lived through that, Hoping for a mortgage rate under ten percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, "Wow, if they get ever ever get under ten, we'll be we'll be perfect at that time. We'll be in good shape." Well, you know, now of course you're getting prime lending rate is seven point two percent. So anything that's based on the prime lending rate, as I mentioned before, you know, you have to add or subtract from that. So you know what? Yeah, it, it's it seemed too low for a while, and we expect them to go up, and we were wrong year after year after year, after year as you know. <laughs> And uh, but then all of a sudden we you know they then they crept back up and when I say crept back up that's an understatement they went from two point four five percent lending rate to now seven point two percent prime lending rate.
0: What does this do for mortgage rates? What's a mortgage going for now?
7: Well, that they're they're in an inverse yield curve, so the one year mortgages are sitting at about six and a half percent and the 5-year mortgages are about 5 and a quarter percent. Hmm. Um so it's 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 usually when you lock up your money you have to pay more for longer periods of time. But basically what this means is the lenders, the banks and the economists feel this is a short-term blip. And therefore you'll see the interest rates come back down sometime in the next little while. We thought they'd actually be starting to drop now to be honest.
0: I remember hearing that. Uh, The Bank of Canada president said 2025, he may anticipate this going on. Is that to prepare us or do you realistically see that happening?
7: You know what? We are somewhat controlled by the U.S. And you're seeing the U.S. inflation rates come in at just over 3%. And Mm. so they've been tumbling. And you're seeing the stock markets react to that far more than they reacted to the Canadian inflation rates. Put it that way, you know, the tail... The tail doesn't wag the dog. Okay. And the U.S. being the dog. So, you know, we're seeing inflation getting under control. And if you start to see, you know, there's so many moving parts here, but if with our, you're seeing our dollar get stronger only because our interest rates are going up. And so Mm -hmm. that, you know, that hurt, that makes it easier for us to travel to the States. But what does do, it hurts the people that are um, importing goods or exporting goods rather to the U.S. And so now it makes anybody in the U.S. look to Canada saying our goods are more expensive because of their exchange right, rate. Right. So there's a, when they move the interest rates higher, you got lots of things happening. You have the exporters, they don't like it because their dollar goes up. The people that own debt, or have debt rather, they uh, they don't like it because they have less money to spend each month. And the ones that invest money, they're actually loving it right now because they finally can get some interest on their <laughs> investment sitting in you know guaranteed areas
0: how do you keep everybody happy all at once uh don fox with his executive financial consultant with the fox group ig uh, private wealth management make sure you're watching planning or listening to planning your financial future coming up this weekend on saturday morning don as always thanks for the time be well anytime scott thank you don't go away we're coming right back you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. On Tuesday, city staff outlined how they're going to meet the provincial government's goal to build 1.5 million homes over the next decade across Ontario and including locally a big chunk of the Book, uh, Book Road area in Hamilton Southwest. To talk more about all of this, Jeff Beatty is with us, Ward 10 Councillor, City of Hamilton, and here now. Jeff, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
8: Doing well, Scott. Great to be uh, well back on the show. This is actually my third uh, time. I think that's the hat trick.
0: There, there you go. Well, I think you get. Um, uh, we'll look in the back cupboard and see if we can find something. There is a prize for third time. I think there is. <laughs> uh, so this is obviously uh, a, a, a very heated debate in some in some areas. Mm-hmm. Where are we with this? Are, are 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 we confident that things are moving forward? Where are we here?
8: Well, I think that uh, right now. We're at a stage where, uh, I mean, obviously we know that the uh, provincial government has signaled that they're removing certain lands uh, really against the wishes of uh, Hamiltonians and and Ontarians in general, Uh, but they're proceeding in the direction. And uh, we're at at kind of a juncture right now where the province has reached out and said, um, you know, you can participate in the process as these lands are taken out and eventually developed, uh, or you can sit on the sidelines. And the motion that was made at planning committee and and will likely be ratified uh, at council tomorrow is that, um, you know, we're not thrilled with it, uh, but we we would choose to participate in the process uh, rather than just uh, leave it up to uh, someone else to do uh, somewhere outside of the city of Hamilton.
0: Uh, why would anybody leave anything for anybody to do? Whether it's a developer, a government, or or anything, I mean, you know, we we have people that are living in tents. Yet we have people that don't or refuse uh, for the last several decades not to build anything, not to uh, not to build homes. But is this not an opportunity? to build those perfect neighborhoods uh, with, with a, a mix of all different types of housing with great parks to join them all and bike paths and amenities. You know, I, I mean, I've seen them. I know they're around. It's not that hard to do. Is this an opportunity here?
8: Well, I think that what we're talking about is is first and foremost that the city of Hamilton um, made, uh, made its position known some time ago that it, it chose to, uh, develop within the existing urban boundary. Uh, The the previous council and this council has maintained that position that we believe we have sufficient inventory to do that. We have sufficient opportunities for infill to do that. And then an expansion into uh, surrounding farmlands wasn't necessary. That's been the position the whole time. Um, What we're really talking about is that the the province has chosen a different path for us. And it's whether or not we want the individual uh, property owners, the developers, to choose how that infrastructure is put out or if the city and the city planners are going to have some say in how it all pans out. That's really what the topic of the discussion and the planning committee was about.
0: You were talking about, Jeff, that that, that uh, the city confident that they can do this within the city boundaries. We've heard that, um, that a lot of that isn't developed or serviced and it is far from it uh, because mm-hmm. that has not been done. Uh, if that job had been done, then we'd already be there, whereas this other stuff that's closer to the green belt is. So the city or uh, municipalities, and this is very common, have neglected to get that land service. So it's not as usable. Uh, and also, and I've talked to, over the years about all of this, that infield that, that is a part of uh, filling in the infield lots is a part of the solution, but it is nowhere near enough. So is this not just what we have to do at this point?
8: I still remain confident that the the plan that's been laid out, and I'll use the local example here, uh, Scott, in the in my ward in the Stony Creek Fruitland Winona area. There's a big plot here. It's called the Stony Creek Urban Boundary Expansion. It's been on the books for oh gosh, the better part of probably 10 or 20 years uh, expansion between the, uh, the areas of Lewis Road and uh, Fruitland Road from Barton to um, Highway 8. There's a big block of land here. It's ready to go. It's ready to be developed. It's uh, basically serviced uh, and, and it's going to be home to about 11,000 new residents. That's just one example. There are, you know, there are going to be others in other wards. Um, that that speak to the the ready shovel ready uh, properties that uh, are going to be coming on stream shortly. So I think that you know again coming back to the foundational piece here, um, I think that within the current confines of of what uh, what the previous council and this council had uh, signaled that uh, we're we're in good shape
0: uh why are they not already online because this has been a, a, a lengthy 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 program and 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 why are we not seeing the numbers if 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 we don't need to nip into the green belt and i'm just playing devil's advocate here jack for sure if we yeah. don't need to nip into the greenbelt, and and you know we hear all the commercials about anti uh, about urban sprawl and all this why do we not have enough homes built because at the end of the day there's a shortage of homes, and, and that's right the way across the board. No matter what your demographic is, no matter what your, your income is, what have you, there is a extreme shortage. So if we don't need to do all of this, why have municipalities not done it already?
8: You know, I can't speak to the experience in other municipalities, and, and obviously, Scott, I'm I'm new to the role. I've I've been in the seat for you know a whopping eight months, so uh, I I can't tell you exactly what's uh, transpired previous to this new council coming into play. But locally, specifically in in Ward 10 in the Stony Creek, Fruitland, Winona area, the the blocks that we're talking about have multiple landowners, so you have a lot of small parcels of land that have to be very carefully cobbled together, and there's a strategy for doing that. Unfortunately, it's it's taken considerable time. If you go out to other parts uh, where you may have you know hundred acres, one farm uh, developer comes along, it's one property owner. Th- there's no need for consensus or agreement on how that's going to be developed. It just is. It just it just happens. So it's been a a bit of a winding road out here in our neck of the woods that's caused considerable delay, but. Um, those uh, those things are all starting to line up now, and, and we're going to start to see some shovels in the ground on these already existing uh, lands that have been proposed for development for some time.
0: I know you're new to the gig, Jeff, um, but how do you think we got here? How do you and, and you know again, it's it's very <laughs> difficult to to understand all the complexities of municipal governance and such. But how how did we get to this point where for decades we've just stalled?
8: Oof. Good question, Scott. I mean, um, I think it's a confluence of things, uh, you know, we've, we've had um, an, a number of, of issues along the way, uh, different directions, perhaps, uh, you know, different uh, 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 competing interests at times. Um, I'm still unpacking a lot of uh, what's led us here. Again, I, I can tell you the local experience in my part of Hamilton. Other councillors are obviously going to have uh, different stories. Um, it, there's, it's not one thing that has stalled us out. I think it's a number of different things. Uh, you know, the perfect storm, if you will, that has uh, led to things being Moving very very slowly, and that's that's uh, caused a great concern um, for developers for uh, the surrounding community. They they want to know you know what's happening. They don't like this uh, long drawn out process. I'm sure that they would like to see things either happen or don't. Um, and so uh, you know that's that's something that we have to own and uh, move forward with.
0: I love that you fact that you said that, Jeff. And it's not you for just you to own. It's everybody. It's all of us to own. But sure. you, you know exactly. you you bring up a, a valid point um in that yeah uh you said it's a complex issue i don't it is a complex issue but i think the problem is very simple the the simple problem is we didn't build enough houses we don't have enough houses we need to build more homes and how we got there perhaps that's a little cloudy and there's various ways we can say well i can blame them you can blame but at the end of the day Correct. can we all agree finally and 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 you know I, I hold environmentalists, which you know I mean I'm I'm ready to save the planet too. I'm all in. But I, I think there's been a lot of environmental foot dragging here that has slowed this process down. And now we have people living in tents. Can we all agree now that we need to build more homes?
8: I I think that that it's well known that there is um, a crisis of. Of new homes, of affordable houses across to, across our city, across the province. Really, it's not just a city issue. It's it's across the province and in other parts of the country too. We're all suffering from the same issue. Um, particularly hard hit after the pandemic, it really seems to have uh, shifted things, and and we're having trouble coming back to where we were. You know, in a in a 2019 sense, we're just not getting back to those those levels. Uh, so we, like I said, we've we've all got a lot of work to do. Uh, we are united in our goal of of increasing housing stock. Uh, I don't think that there's an issue there. Uh, I think that uh, perhaps some of us may have some differing opinions on how to move forward. Uh, but I think the the uh, the crux of the matter is, and particularly what we were discussing at the planning meeting on Tuesday was. Um, let us work together in some way, shape, or form uh, to, to reach those end goals. Even if we don't agree on some of the particulars, at, at least we're, we're trying to move forward in a cohesive fashion.
0: Jeff Beattie with us, Ward 10 Counselor, City of Hamilton, talking about housing. And Jeff, your uh, free gift for you making your third appearance is in the mail.
8: <laughs> Fantastic. I'll be watching. All right. Thank you, Jeff.
0: We're shaking our heads and talking about all the broken things, it seems, uh, whether it's, uh, well, I don't have to list it all. Why would I just depress you all that way? Uh, And and we certainly know the issues once the pandemic ended and we wanted to get out and travel more and such, uh, passports and delays at airports and so on and so forth. Uh, Now we see uh, that there are some delays in getting more pilots off the ground when they are ready to fly. Uh, it's the paperwork. Let's bring in uh, Keith Mackey, Mackey International, and he is here now. Keith, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and you. So far, so good. Keith, what is the process to be to become a pilot? Say I want to be a pilot for Air Canada. What do I have to do?
1: Well, if you're a young man wanting to go into the airline industry, the first thing I recommend that you do is make sure you can pass the physical. The physical is rather strenuous. And if you can't pass it, we need to fix what's wrong with you before you start your training, rather than have you spend a great deal of money and then find out subsequently that you can't pass a physical to be an airline pilot.
0: Medically, is there anything special about being an airline pilot? What does it require?
1: Well, uh, as you get older, they require that you get an EKG periodically. And actually, you send the EKG Directly to the FAA in this country, and their cardiologists look at it. They monitor what you've been doing, your medical history, and the idea is just we don't want anybody up there who's medically unqualified to fly in the cockpit. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, say you pass that process, what what happens next?
1: Well, apparently, what's happening is uh, people are completing their training or their. Uh, getting the medical application in, and this has to go to Transport Canada, apparently they're terribly understaffed because they seem unable to respond in a relatively limited period of time to issue the medical. Now, they say 30 to 40 days is normal in Canada. Now, in the United States, if you wanted to learn to fly and we went to the doctor's office, you'd be in there, be examined, And you'd come out the door with a medical certificate in your hand. So it wouldn't have to go to the FAA. Now, the FAA would eventually uh, review what you declared on the application and uh, make sure there was nothing that was missed by the doctor. But normally, that wouldn't be a problem. That wouldn't be something that you'd uh, expect to encounter.
0: Um, Maybe easier isn't the right word. Is it easier, less time, more efficient to get your uh, for this for a U.S. pilot than a Canadian pilot?
1: Well, apparently with these difficulties with Transport Canada, it is, because uh, that's really never an issue here. Uh, The medical certificate is actually issued by the FAA-designated doctor that gives you the exam. So he actually hands you the piece of paper, the medical certification, before you leave his office. And the same when you take a flight test for the pilot certificate. Now, the examiner can issue you a temporary pilot certificate authorizing whatever it was that you just passed in your examination, ex- authorizing that on your certificate. But in Canada, apparently, this has to go back to uh, Transport Canada, and the format is a little different. They issue a little blue booklet, looks kind of like a passport, and that's a process that has to be done by uh Transport Canada and apparently can't be done in the field by the examiner at all.
0: Are there many Canadian pilots waiting for their wings, per se?
1: Well, I understand that there are, that there's quite a few, and that some of them have waited up to three years to have their uh, certification looked at. So apparently the uh, uh, folks at Transport Canada have yet to recover from the pandemic.
0: How does this affect the industry, Keith?
1: it could be a real problem because we have a pilot shortage anyway uh, the older guys are retiring and there's not enough new people coming up to be able to fill the void now here in the states in order to fly for an airline you need 1500 hours of flying experience and and, and that's a lot when you finish your training you might have 200 250 hours in your logbook. And the only jobs you can get aren't with the airlines. They'd be usually acting as a flight instructor or flying something uh, involving bank checks or something like that. But you won't be able to get on with an airline until you require the 1,500 hours. And that takes a long time and it's difficult to do. You can't afford to go out and rent an airplane for 1,500 hours to build up your experience enough to get an entry-level airline position. It just doesn't work.
0: Is the military a good option?
1: It is. But the problem is, since there's no real wars going on now, many people are staying in the military. The military pilots view it as kind of a career and not something that's temporary as a stepping stone to a civilian airline job. Would
0: a military pilot be uh, like the first pick and someone like a, a private airline, a commercial airline Would they? Oh yeah. We'll take one of those guys, girls.
1: Well, generally so. Yeah. Yes. For years, uh, that was the main source of, of pilots. I mean, particularly as the airlines grew after world war II, almost everyone that got on with an airline had flown in the military and that followed after Korea and after Vietnam to a certain extent. But, uh, the military pilot pool is diminished we don't uh, have as many people getting out of the military so that uh, reservoir if you will of experienced people is not really uh, really available anymore
0: keith mackey with us mackey international delays in getting canadian pilots off the ground due to the paperwork in around medicals and such keith as always thanks so much for the time be well
5: you're, you're welcome, welcome scott, scott. You, you too, too. When there's an
6: issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXMW. We've talked a lot
0: on this show about the transition uh, to renewable energy and industries and such. The electric vehicle uh, market, of course, a huge part of this in Ontario, with uh, many big deals being signed with manufacturers and such in order to, to uh, keep Ontario at the forefront of vehicle assembly and such. But it goes beyond vehicle assembly as we transition into an EV world. Uh, But also Canada, and specifically Ontario, wants to be a part of the process, whether it's the components or even the raw materials that go into making those components, minerals for batteries and such. Just how difficult is it to get to the ring of fire? How difficult is it? To actually get a mine built, let's bring in uh, to talk more about all of this, Colin Demello, Queens Park Bureau Chief with Global News, and here now, Colin. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Where are we with this discussion, Colin? Because there's lots of chat, uh, chatter about how we're going to be on the forefront of the EV industry moving forward. Full, uh, you know, meal, a uh, full meal deal here from uh, raw materials right to assembly. How difficult a process is it? Give us an update on what the Ring of Fire is all about and how we can get
6: there. Yeah, the Ring of Fire is a pretty big mineral deposit uh, in northern Ontario that really is a bit inaccessible. Uh, in order to get to a lot of northern Ontario communities, these are fly-in communities, right? They only have an ice road uh, that's only valid when, obviously, it's it's pretty cold out and uh, and the lakes are, and rivers are frozen over. So in order to get to the Ring of Fire, the Ford government needs to build an all-seasons road that would be able to you know, handle large Um, vehicles that will be able to go in there, pull out whatever they need to pull out and transport them uh, down south to refineries. The problem, though, is they need to get the backing of a lot of first nations that obviously call those areas home the ford government has entered into agreements with two first nations martin's fall martin falls and the webequay first nations they are conducting environmental assessments to figure out what would be the impacts of building this all season road to the, to the ring of fire The problem, though, is that there are other First Nations. They're called the Treaty 9 First Nation. Uh, They are opposed to this, not necessarily saying no entirely, but what they're saying is they need more information on the actual impact of uh, building a road to the Ring of Fire. And they want to have a seat at the table to actually be a partner in the decision. They want equal say in this decision. So here's one of the concerns, Scott, in that area. Around the Ring of Fire is something called peatlands. Peatlands capture carbon dioxide from the air, and they store them. It's just a natural function of what they do. And environmentalists have said, look, I mean, this is really crucial for the environment, crucial for Ontario and Canada's uh, carbon emissions uh, reductions, having these peatlands there. And there are lots of concerns about, "Okay, well, if you build a road there, you're going to have to disturb those peatlands. You disturb the peatlands, you release the carbon dioxide. And what really does that mean then for Ontario's efforts to electrify everything and reduce carbon emissions if you're releasing carbon into the air by accessing these peatlands? So so that's kind of the, the underlying concern here. And so for the Ford government to get to that destination of actually getting Uh, minerals out of the ring of fire they need to you know uh, clear a number of hurdles uh, and uh, as well now they've got to figure out a court challenge because that treaty nine first nations group it's taking both the ontario and the federal government to court over the ring of fire so you know this this is going to be a very complex battle for the ford government and they need those minerals uh plainly speaking out of that ring of fire
0: Uh, When we talk about many of Indigenous issues, it's often due to isolation, whether it's water, whether it's getting supplies, what have you. Would this highway, although, uh, you know, obviously benefiting the mining industry, would this help First Nations gain accessibility?
6: Uh, That's that's a good question. I don't necessarily have uh, the finite answer to that. But I, I would also suggest that, you know, a lot of these First Nations have called these areas home without a road for a very long time uh, and they necessarily haven't been the driving factors behind building a road there have been many mining prospectors that are up in the ring of fire that have been calling for this road and and i think everyone kind of wants to work together you know the premier this week even talked about some kind of a revenue sharing model so that whatever is pulled out of the ring of fire you know the revenues would be uh, to a degree shared with those first nations as well so there would be an enriching factor for a lot of them a- a- according to the ontario government but You know, for First Nations, there there are you know it's multi-layer, right? They're looking at the environmental uh, factors. They're looking at their lands being disturbed. They're looking at the impacts of that land being disturbed, right? If you put a road there, what about the wildlife? What about the uh, you know the natural elements that might uh, fade away and therefore impact their way of life? So that's why it makes this such a complex uh, case. But for the Ford government, I mean, they're looking at this as the way, the key to really upscaling their EV manufacturing strategy. There are minerals in Ontario to build electric batteries, electric vehicle batteries. What they need the ring of fire for is to take that strategy to the next level. So that's why they're kind of looking at this as, you know, want instrumental really in, in their electric vehicle battery manufacturing strategy.
0: If it's this difficult to build the road, how difficult is it going to be to actually build the mine? But that being said, this is all the same process and, I guess, all the same consultation. So a good place to start?
6: Yeah, I mean, the, the consultation, consultation really is what the Ford government always says that they're doing. The trouble is, is who are they consulting with? Why right? they have these agreements with two First Nations? Other First Nations say, well, they're not really being consulted. Uh, you know, they're not really part of the process and they would like to have a greater say in that process. Uh, and ultimately, you have to understand on the world stage, because the premier keeps mentioning that the world is watching yeah, us. Yeah. So on the on the world stage, the Ford government is using the Ring of Fire as leverage, right? Ontario is the only place that has all of these minerals necessary to be able to build a Ring of Fire. And if you're an EV company, you're trying to do it in the most carbon uh, neutral way as possible because that's the way you sell vehicles in this day and age and so for them if they uh, are are having to import minerals it doesn't really make it make sense right. so what the Ford government is saying they say we have the minerals but if you want to come and mine them You've got to refine them here. You've got to you start the manufacturing chain here. You've got to do everything from, you know, um, pulling the minerals out of, out of the ground to uh, putting the battery um, off the production line. You've got to do all of that in Ontario. So they're using this as part of their bargaining chip and their strategy when they're presenting Ontario to the world, but internally within the province, they haven't actually gotten all those agreements done. So that ultimately becomes the concern are are they building this kind of on a, on a bit of a weak foundation?
0: Uh, you got to wonder if it's going to be as difficult to get one of these mines built to help the transition as it was to get a pipeline or a well dug. I mean, it, it seems that it takes just as long.
6: Yeah, it could. And, and listen, the, the Ford government is not the first government that's tried to figure out you know, how to make the ring of fire work. Uh, they, you know, the, the former liberal government had been trying for years and they haven't really gotten to that point. Um, but but I had a good conversation with um, Flavio Volpe, the uh, president of the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association, who made this point. He said before there wasn't really an impetus to get into the ring of fire. But now with uh, Volkswagen and with uh, Stellantis, Ontario has two anchor customers that are going to be pumping out uh, electric vehicle batteries. Now that he says they've got Anchor customers that makes it much more of a of a driving factor to get to the ring of fire. So I, I think that might be why they're the First Nations are feeling additional pressure and the worry is being amped up, which means they might dig their heels into the ground here until they can find out exactly what the environmental impacts are going to be, what the ramifications are going to be if they build a road, and ultimately what the cost sharing and the revenue sharing is going to be about this entire thing. Until they get those answers, they say they're not going to give their blessing to the Ford government just
0: yet. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
6: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, we've been talking a lot about um, um, artificial intelligence. And uh, Google and 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 Facebook uh, blocking Canada and Canadian news and such. Well, Google is rolling out a new artificial intelligent chat box, artificial intelligence chat bot named Bard. Uh, everywhere but here, <laughs> to talk more about Bard and what it all means and why Canada is Bard-free or barred from Bard. Uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and
9: journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. <laughs> Scott, great to be here. Yeah, well, well, great, except for the fact that I'm you know, i stuck using ChatGPT, not BARD, because apparently Google doesn't deem Canada worthy enough to get its latest shiny new toy. You're not worthy,
0: Carmi. Uh, so <laughs>
9: what? what is BARD? What, explain this to us. So BARD is basically Google's answer to chat GPT and, and it, the class of it's a, it's what's known as an AI powered chat bot. Uh, and it's kind of like search on steroids rather than just giving it a bunch of search terms and then getting a bunch of links back in return you ask it fully formed questions and it uses artificial intelligence to give you fully formed answers it's it's known as generative ai because it creates something from nothing uh, based on studying huge amounts of data from the internet so obviously this is the kind of the hottest thing chat gpt was released uh, late last year and very quickly became the fastest growing uh, online technology in history: uh, 100 million uh, people signed up for it in two months at the time, and uh, and so of course Google recognized, "Whoa, this new technology is a major threat to our search business, to our advertising business." We got to come up with an answer to it. Bard was the answer. They announced it uh, in March. They made it available on a very limited basis. You could only get it in the U.S. under certain circumstances, and they've been gradually kind of expanding the envelope since and this morning they announced rather quietly that they were going to be making it available in 230 countries, uh, including Aruba and Madagascar and Djibouti and basically everywhere, uh, even Europe, which they had previously not uh, made it available in because Europe has very strict privacy laws, they said, well, we've already negotiated with them now, so we're going to make it available there too. So everybody gets it except for Canada. and 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 we're on a very short list, uh, Russia. China, Afghanistan, North Korea, and Canada. So let's play the Sesame Street game. Which one of these does not belong? So it's obviously, there's no technical reason why. They're simply punishing us because they're fighting with the government over the Online News Act. And I guess they don't think Canada deserves it because they're still angry at the government. So Canadian citizens are going to have to suffer. And I'm just shaking my head going, oh, please, really? This is 2023, folks. Grow up.
0: Is BARD better than ChatGPT? Is it just more advanced?
9: Uh, well, the interesting thing is it's got some new features. And and this always happens when a, a radical new technology is introduced. It, it's introduced in what's called, you know, originally like beta form, right? It's, it's very limited release. Uh, uh, you know, people play with it. It breaks. It does. It's not always that reliable. They provide feedback to the company. The company then improves it. And that's kind of where we're at with BARD now. Version one came out in in March and they've been gradually improving it since. Today's announcement included some really cool new capabilities. Now BARD speaks. So you can either have it give you a text response or you can have it speak to you, which is, you know, it's a cool party trick for you and me, but for many members of society, it's an accessibility thing too. And it makes it much more accessible Uh, and it almost makes it kind of like, siri or google assistant or amazon alexa and it kind of it literally could be the next generation of electronic virtual assistant rendering siri and alexa obsolete so this is a really big change you can also have it change its tone it can be professional sounding or casual sounding you can have the answers be simple or long or short so they're really starting to tweak it and they're also making it available in more languages now Uh, almost four dozen languages are supported so you sort of put it all together and you're like this is a pretty good pretty credible alternative to chat gpt and in fact a lot of people i know are kind of put it playing the two off against each other in much the same way we used to do navigator versus internet explorer use them both and then see which one you prefer unfortunately in canada we're kind of not there yet
0: so what's the industry reaction here how will chat gpt react to this
9: uh, obviously, uh, open AI uh, concerned that Google is now uh, targeting its jugular. I mean, this is really that, the next great battle in tech, much like uh, Apple versus IBM, much like Microsoft versus Netscape, much like uh, you know Apple versus Google with smartphones uh, and operating systems and devices. So you know we're we're kind of we're at that next big battle, and and uh, OpenAI obviously is uh, they partnered with Microsoft. Microsoft's invested ten billion dollars in the company, uh, and Microsoft is very actively incorporating ChatGPT technology into all of its products. So if you use Microsoft Teams for your hybrid work, well, it's got pieces of ChatGPT in it. If you use Microsoft Word or Excel or PowerPoint, it, it'll, it's got ChatGPT in it to suggest, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just templates. It'll, it's like a smart assistant to stand over your shoulder and make you look like a hero. So now you have Microsoft on one side and you have Google on the other, which has literally refocused the company. They called it a code red when ChatGPT was released, that they pivoted everything. All non-essential projects were canceled. Everybody is now all in on developing AI and also incorporating it into all the Google services that we use every day. So this is a full-on war, and these two companies are just throwing everything they've got at it because quite literally the very future of computing, sort of what, what happens after search, what happens after digital advertising, uh, you know, sort of after the, the paradigm of computing that we've all gotten used to today, um, that, you know, there's no guarantee that Google is going to win this one. So they are just betting the company on it.
0: Wow. OK, so getting back to uh, what you made reference to earlier uh, with uh, the government, the fight between uh, the government and, and big tech, uh, Facebook, Google on uh, obviously paying for news content and such. Where is that discussion now? Has it moved forward? Do we just wait and see at this point?
9: Yeah, a little bit. Monday, the government issued uh, some additional rules. uh, It's kind of an update of its regulatory process um, that also includes provisions for limits on how much these tech companies would pay to media platforms uh, for carrying their content, carrying their links on their services. Um, Google continues to negotiate with the government, whereas Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram and now Threads, is not um, so Google at least looks like it's sort of in scope and at some point I'm you know cautiously optimistic that Google and the government look c- some kind of agreement meta though is still playing the you know the intransigent child uh, standing off to the side pouting um, and refusing to participate so that's kind of where we're at now is that there has been some progress but right now Google is looking like the good guy, Meta not so much, and you know Google's decision to not include Bard, I think, it's just you know it's part of that negotiation process. They're still putting a dig in, into the feds, basically saying, uh, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. We're making progress, but you know, let's keep talking, and then we'll consider giving you access to our shiny new toy.
0: Uh, Australia did this or was it New Zealand and got money out of them. Do we ever know, do we find out how much they actually paid? Was it just uh, lip service money or did they get a substantial amount out of social media for this?
9: Yeah, Australia did enact a law in finally in 2021 after a very similar process. Both companies uh, threatened Meta and Google threatened to go dark in Australia if they didn't get their way. They ultimately tweaked the law to their preference, and uh, now they are in fact negotiating deals with media platforms. They're not saying exactly how much money there is, but we do—they are getting. But we do know that there are limits, that there's a framework for what an acceptable amount of money is, and that it's not open-ended, that it's based on the size of the business in the country. Um, So it looks like Canada is slowly moving toward that Australian standard, which is no surprise, The the Canadian law was written with the Australian law in mind. So it wouldn't surprise me if our kind of roadmap, ends up looking a lot like the Australians. And we also have similar safeguards that make the tech companies happy that they're not going to essentially be writing an open check to media companies that there will be a limit on how much they have to spend.
0: AI brand new and already changing. Carmi Levy trying to decode it all for us, uh, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
9: Really appreciate it, Scott.
0: Thank you. Scott Radley from The Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am great. How are you? I'm doing very good. Um, uh, we remember the story of the tragic shooting uh, in downtown Toronto. happened in the middle of the day, and a mother of two, I think she was 44, uh, takes the stray bullet and uh, is pronounced dead. They have found the subject or the suspect, rather, and it turns out he was out on bail, not for one offense, but for two separate offenses. We look back to the police officers that have been killed in the line of duty and those that have involved people who have been out on parole who shouldn't have been. We've got a safety minister and a prime minister who doesn't even know when a a dangerous offender has been moved from a maximum security penitentiary to a medium. Um, Is it safe to say that this system's broken?
10: Uh, Scott, I would suggest that if you're, if it's going to be broken, that has to mean that you don't want it to be in the place that it is. And correct. uh, But I'm not sure that, I mean, I'm not sure that the people who are in charge, I'm talking government, bureaucrats, whomever, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, despite these things, I don't, I'm not suggesting they wanted these things to happen. I don't mean that. No. But I don't believe necessarily that they're really all that of the opinion that it's broken. I think they are probably okay with what they'll say is the vast majority don't happen like this. And we think that this is the way it should work. They could change it if they didn't like the way it was. So broken is, it's an interesting word because broken would suggest that it's, it's something has gone wrong and it can't be fixed and. I think it could eat, well, not easily, but without broken, broken things can be fixed. I'll use our dishwasher as a perfect example. Yeah. Okay. But, but you're making, but, but when you, when you press the button on your dishwasher and it doesn't start, what do you do immediately? You call the repairman. Yeah. If they, this is not, this is not the first time this has happened. This has been going on now. And you would think that if the first or even the second time this happened, if they felt it was broken, they would have pushed the button for the repairman, but they haven't. Mm which only can lead me to believe that they think it's okay. These are outliers. These are oddities that are, you know, blips in the system that we really shouldn't expect these to happen. And, you know, for the most part, we think the system and the way we've designed it now is what we, the way we want it to work. And, you know, I mean, look, I, that would almost suggest that you have to, um call this collateral damage. And that's really rough. That's really a, a coarse way to describe this. Cause again, I don't think anybody is saying, oh, well, that's fine that we lost somebody. I don't think that's the case, but it's fixable. If you wanted to fix it, nobody's trying to fix it though. So if they don't see it, I don't think it's broken.
0: Uh, uh,
10: does it matter uh, that they think it
0: is okay? um because if they think it is okay they could be very well out of touch with the majority of Canadians who aren't happy with this anymore and i don't think again you know we're living in a world of extremes you can debate where well you know someone who makes a mistake yes they deserve a second chance a third chance what have you but these are people who are repeat offenders who have violent past who in and, and, and in the case of this suspect they were out on bail for two separate violent charges okay so 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 whether they, you know, whether you think you're doing the right thing is one thing, but when the people have a perception that you don't even have an idea of what's going on. And the Bernardo as an example, case is a Bernardo case is an example. I think that's completely different. We're doing the right thing, but we're doing it well. And no, you may think what you're doing is right, uh, but it's not working.
10: Let me, let me, again, let me ask a really uh, unfair question and it may be a cold question. I don't know, but uh, you know what? If, if a member of cabinet, if this woman who was shot and killed in Toronto by this guy or the police officer uh, nearby mm. here, who was killed by the person out on bail, if that was the wife or husband of a cabinet minister, yeah. do you think there would yeah. be a different response to this from the government? Yes, there would. If this was, and I'm not even going to say a name cause I don't want to like go down that path, but if a cabinet minister's loved one was taken out by this kind of thing. It would be, you would, and they didn't do something, you would say, how absolutely cold is it that they don't even care enough that it didn't hit home? Well, it shouldn't have to hit home because it's hit home to someone. Yeah. It's hit home to someone. And the fact that it wasn't you and you can go on with your day and say, well, generally we think that the system that's been designed is a good one. No, it it, it has hit home with someone and this person You know, as you say, she's got a couple of kids and she's got a husband and she's probably got lots of brothers and sisters or cousins or whatever, and a million friends, they've all been affected by this. And now multiply that by every other example that you've had. And you know, it shouldn't have to hit home to the people making the decisions to understand that if this is not seeming to work broadly, that maybe it's considered broken. Look at the interference situation. No one seemed to give a
0: a rat's rear end until it involved an MP in the house. Then all of a sudden, wow, this guy's family's being harassed. That's not right. And yet when everybody else was being uh, harassed within the Chinese-Canadian community, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh,
10: Police stations, yeah, whatever. But as soon as an MP, and rightly so, then all of a sudden it gets different attention. It happens all the time in all kinds of different ways, Scott. How many politicians are there who are those who yell for defund the police, but who have private security. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and okay. So if you really like taking that example, if you really believe in what you're saying, live it the way everyone else has to live it, where your house is not protected, where you're not protected walking down the street. Now, do you still believe in defund the police when you're not in a position to say, I want to get rid of them, but I want to look after myself and, and expand that to all these different issues. That's just one. It's, it's just, it's crazy when you have politicians who seem so detached from the realities of the things that touch so many other people. Good point. Scott
0: Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks for the time. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. We leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, for the last word. This one via email from Mr. Lowe. In light of the tragic shooting in Toronto by yet again people on bail that have a firearms ban, it is time to recall Parliament, get our elected officials back to Ottawa and deal with these repeat offenders once and for all so we can enjoy a stroll down a city street or even a beverage on an outdoor patio without looking over our shoulder
6: regularly. Mr. Lowe. Keep right, accept to pass. Night.